for a couple of different readings tonight. First, Proverbs 8. We'll be reading Article 36 in the back of the blue hymnal in just a few minutes. Proverbs 8, beginning in verse 12 through verse 21. This is God's holy and inspired word. It's given to us for our good. Let's attend to its reading. Proverbs 8, verse 12. I, wisdom... Dwell together with prudence. I possess knowledge and discretion. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. Counsel and sound judgment are mine. I have understanding and power. By me, kings reign and rulers make laws that are just. By me, princes govern and all nobles who rule on earth. I love those who love me. And those who seek me, find me. With me are riches and honor, enduring wealth and prosperity. My fruit is better than fine gold. What I yield surpasses choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, along the paths of justice, bestowing wealth on those who love me, and making their treasuries full. And then turning over to Romans chapter 13. Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. Once again, God's holy word, Romans 13. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing." He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants, who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. On page 88, the back of our hymnal. Came across an article this week online. It said, why you should give yourself to studying the Belgic Confession. And I immediately thought we're 36 weeks ahead of you, pal. Article 36, speaking of the civil government. We believe 
that our gracious God, because of the depravity of mankind, has appointed kings, princes, and magistrates, willing that the world should be governed by certain laws and policies to the end that the dissoluteness of men might be restrained and all things carried on among them with good order and decency. For this purpose, he has invested the magistracy with the sword for the punishment of evildoers and for the protection of them that do well. Their office is not only to have regard unto and watch for the welfare of the civil state, but also to protect the sacred ministry, that the kingdom of Christ may thus be promoted. They must therefore countenance the preaching of the word of the gospel everywhere, that God may be honored and worshipped by everyone as he commands in his word. Moreover, it is the bounden duty of everyone, of whatever state, quality, or condition he may be, to subject himself to the magistrates, to pay tribute, to show due honor and respect to them, and to obey them in all things which are not repugnant to the word of God, to supplicate for them in their prayers that God may rule and guide them in all their ways, and that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and gravity. Wherefore, we detest the Anabaptists and other seditious people, and in general, all those who reject the higher powers and magistrates and would subvert justice, introduce community of goods, and confound that decency and good order which God has established among men. In these words, we believe. I read this week that Three-fourths of the world, speaking, I believe, in more landmass than population, but the, if you take all of the governments of the world, three-fourths of that which covers the world is um, not friendly to the idea of religious freedom. So these questions are very intense to, to many people throughout the world, and certainly in our age, in our day, in our time, uh, we perhaps see the landscape changing, and we think we can see different days ahead of us. And so, uh, obviously important to think about this at all times, but certainly something that gets the people of God particularly interested um, in, in recent decades and in recent years. Reformed Christians can often describe themselves as Augustinian because he was that early church father who brought about... Uh, if we can speak uh, out of time, he brought about a reformed understanding of divine grace, God's sovereignty in salvation, although the, the Reformation was certainly long yet to occur. But the, the largest uh, contribution of Augustine, which reformed Christians have appreciated greatly over the century, is a Christian view of civil government, of the magistrate, of our government leaders. Augustine wrote at a particular time where the empire of Rome was undergoing massive changes, a great collapse even, and people had been trained through experience intuitively to connect the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, with the kingdom of Rome. And so as this great collapse is beginning to take place, and Augustine is writing the city of God, Christians are asking if Rome fails. If Rome falls, does that mean the kingdom of God has failed? Does that mean uh, the word of God has 
failed. Many people in the history of our own country would be confronted with the same kinds of questions if the United States of America were to fall or to fail. But this began a long and challenging conversation about the place of of civil government in the Christian and biblical worldview. The starting point for us, not only in our conversation this evening, but overall, is that human history... God's people dwelling in the midst of the world together with those who are not the covenant people of God. You can take a look at anything that happens and you're going to say and find out that it is a mixed bag. In a fallen world, a world full of sinners, under the curse, ultimately we will not fulfill our desire for an ultimate and eternal home in this world until the time is fulfilled and Jesus Christ comes again until the curse is taken away, until death is defeated, until sin is no more. So as biblical Christians and all the things that we look at in history, we we begin with this fundamental assumption that everything's going to be a mixed bag. You're not going to find anything that's absolutely perfect. You're not going to find anything that fulfills our desire for an ultimate home when we're speaking of a, a, a civil government or a magistrate. So Christians... And I believe this is absolutely true. Christians who are wanting to be biblical must disavow any hope of utopia, any hope of heaven on earth, because a world that's filled with sinners, a world that is under the curse, will always fall short of that eternal hope that we have, which God gives us in his word. Augustine, though, also helped us to think about how we can begin to construct from Scripture a positive view of magistrates, of civil government, by going back to the text of Scripture and finding out how God has instituted it for our good in the fallen world. The fallen world is, of course, our starting point, as we mentioned. The Confession says as much, saying that this is what God has done because of the depravity of mankind, right? Because of the sinfulness of mankind, God has instituted human government for our good. So the biblical and the Christian worldview, when it comes to this shared project, how do we govern ourselves or how do we view the one who is ruling over us, it begins with those fundamental assumptions, You can think of Winston Churchill who drove home this idea of the mixed bag for us when he said that democracy is the worst form of government except for all the other ones that have ever been tried, right? Whatever we're doing, it's going to be imperfect. It's not going to give us ultimate answers. People are sinful and people are fallen. We go to the text then of Romans chapter 13 particularly. wanted to read Proverbs 8 to lay some groundwork. But Romans 13, there we find these principles. That the place of human government is legitimate and therefore we are to submit to it. Its place is legitimate. Its function is to lengthen human history or to preserve the world. And finally, its scope is limited. First, human government, the civil magistrates are elected or appointed leaders, they are legitimate and giving them honor is proper. Whether rulers, magistrates, legislators, elected leaders, uh, they are a gift from God, is what Romans chapter 13 says. They are given to us by God. 
And when we say they are a gift from God, we say that they are a gift of God's common grace, a gift that is shared by all people, like marriage. Marriage is a a common grace institution. Now it has particular things about it that are enjoyed and seen and recognized only by the people of God, by the church. But marriage is something that's common to all men. That's one of the reasons why the redefinition of marriage is such a dangerous thing in society because it's a gift of God's common grace. Many gifts of God's common grace, those which are enjoyed by all people. We see why God has instituted these kinds of things. You think of uh, one of the examples within God's people at the end of the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You don't have a strong and uh, a certain solid leader then society ceases to function in the proper way. It's for this reason that John Calvin said that for the Christian, tyranny is better than anarchy. It's better to live under a tyrant than to live in a land where there is no law. Even if you're talking about a a self-interested, self-righteous, completely self-absorbed tyrant, that is better to live in a land with some semblance of law than in complete and utter chaos. Why is this? Well, it's something about how we were created. The image of God and to exist in some kind of structure of authority. This is how we were made. And so Paul says in our passage tonight, let every person be subject to the governing authorities because human beings were made to live in subjection. Peter says something similar in 1 Peter, but he actually expands it. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he expands it beyond just government. He says, be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. But then Peter goes on to talk about how servants are to be obedient to their masters, how, to wives, uh, how wives are to submit to their husbands. He shows how this idea of falling within and submitting yourself to an authority is germane to basically all people. Even if a king had a kingdom that were as big as the world, he would still fall under the authority of God. So Paul and Peter agree and they see this common thread throughout humanity we were made to be in some sense even if only to God in subjection as the church one of the great applications of this mentality this idea this truth for ourselves is that we can show the world in our witness in the way that we live we can show the world that we understand this about ourselves we understand that this is declared to us in God's word When we join the church as full communicant members, of course, and profess our faith, we take vows to submit ourselves to the government of the church, something that is against the mentality of today's world. Ministers take vows to submit to their brethren in a presbytery or in a classis. The church submits to one another because we understand that there are no lone rangers in the church. The Christian home is a vital part of this as well. In a world where the family continues to erode, where it continues to to fall apart and people are pursuing their own personal interests, thinking about the kinds of decisions they can make, what will benefit me the most? The church can stand up and say, no, 
We build strong families upon the authority structure that God has ordained of wives submitting to husbands and children submitting to parents. The world crumbles around us in regards to the family. The church can show what the good life really is. The church can show what God has instituted and ordained as the good life by building strong families. There's a terrible example of this, a counterexample of this, I guess you should say, this past week in Canada, where a father now stands in, in danger of conviction and jail time for what is being called family violence. Um, his daughter began, teenage daughter began to identify as a, a male, attempting to do so or whatever, however you would, I don't know the correct way to put it. She was starting to identify that way and the public school was facilitating uh, getting her some hormone therapy and uh, he continued to refer to her by the name he gave to her at her birth, continued to use female pronouns and now he stands in danger of conviction and jail time for what is being called family violence. Now this is of course an example of where Christians would not be compelled to obey the government because in this particular situation Uh, This government has left their God-ordained function, which is the promotion of what is right, declaring what is good is right, and calling evil, evil. The big idea is that we were made to be under law. So Paul says, be in subjection. It's for your good. It's for the depravity of mankind that God has instituted these things. So the warning that's given to us, do not reject that which God has instituted. Do not do so lightly. Do not reject that which God has placed above you, particularly those governments that are still serving their God-ordained function of promoting the good and punishing the evil. This is exactly what the Lord teaches to us in the book of Romans. Whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed. So this probably introduces a whole host of questions in your head. Is it ever legitimate to disobey a government over you? Or... Whether in a a civil fashion, civil disobedience, or in a more aggressive way. You probably think about the the American Revolution, for example. The the kind of violent or more aggressive going against a government over you. Uh, Is that disobedient to Romans 13? Well, it's interesting. You consider this passage, you have to go to what Paul says in the next verse. You have to look at what he says in the next verse. Why does God command us to submit to our civil leaders? Why does he do it? It's because they are a restraint to evil. Because they punish wrongdoers. Because they are a terror not to good conduct, but to bad. And so Paul's point in Romans 13 is this. The legitimacy of government, or any government, is tied to their rightful carrying out of their function. What God has given them to do. Look at the second half of verse 13. Do what is good and live without fear of your government. Do what is good and you won't have to live in fear. Of course, there are some people, sadly, in the course of history and even alive today, who will do the good and they will have to fear their government. That means that they have left their God-ordained function, so they have lost their legitimacy. The illustration of a a good and bad parent brings it much more down to earth, but it brings us the same principle. 
When a parent makes a young child go to school and go to church and eat their vegetables, that child is under compulsion to obey the parent. But then there are rare instances where you see uh, this horrible kind of rejection of the function of what proper parents are supposed to do. If a parent is trying to force a child to help them steal drugs or, or something else that would be unfathomable, unfathomable to us, the child is not in the same sense bound, compelled to obey because the parent is not carrying out their proper role in the right way. As I revisit the question of something like uh, the American Revolution, the founding fathers of our country uh, looked at the way the King of England was operating and he said he's rejecting the kind of natural rights that people have. And so there was a legitimate body, the Continental Congress, that said we're going to declare independence from this king. I believe that that process is much more legitimate than what happened, say, 13 years later in the French Revolution, which was kind of a a wholesale rejection of authority. And you can go to France even today and you can see how that battle cry, neither God nor country, is still ringing in the ears and in the hearts of many people in that country. It was a, a wholesale rejection of authority, whereas the founding of our country was more a working out of proper authority. So that's just for your own thinking on that. Uh, Get that question perhaps more than you would think. Is uh, the American Revolution a rejection of of Romans 13? I don't don't think so. So uh, government's second idea then tonight, government's function is to preserve or lengthen human history. So first, the government's place is legitimate. Secondly, the government's function is to preserve or to lengthen human history. How does it carry out its function of preservation? Well, it has to do it differently than the church, doesn't it? The church carries out its authority through God's work, in his spirit, in the conscience of men and women. The church declares things. The church's work is ministerial. God's word is to be proclaimed. It is to be opened up. It is to be explained. The church is to call people to repent and to obey and to walk in obedience. And it compels them to do so because the Spirit of God works hand in hand with the Word of God. It compels people to do it through their conscience. But how does the state enforce and ensure right and wrong? It's not primarily through appealing to conscience and teaching. It's through bearing the sword. It's through the threat of the sword. This is why in verse 4, the Lord says through Paul, For he, the king, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. In other words... When criminals are rightly punished, that's a foreshadowing of God's ultimate judgment upon them. That's one of the ways in which God's wrath is exercised in this world, in this life. When kings act according to their God-ordained authority, they carry out a sentence that is on an evildoer, a wrongdoer from on high. God's wrath is against them. The authority to bear the sword that was given to the civil state 
to punish in ways that fit the crime, to even exercise capital punishment. These are things that were given all the way back in Genesis 9, right after the flood. You've got to go to that passage to see all of these things laid out in a fundamental and foundational way. There Noah steps out into a new world. God has, has wiped out the world. He is recreating it. It's a in a sense, cast in the way that that Eden is explained, but this is, of course, a a fallen world. But it's a recreated Eden, and God makes a covenant with all the earth. He makes promises, right? But these are not promises that are like the ones that are made to Abraham in a few chapters. They're different. They're fundamentally different than the promises made to Abraham. They're promises made to everyone, not just to a select covenant people. They're promises that endure to the end of the earth, but they don't go on forever. They don't go on past the, uh, the, this present age. They are, in that sense, temporal. The promises God makes are also non-redemptive. These are not promises of him redeeming people or saving them out of their sin. They're non-redemptive promises. And so this is what God says in Genesis 9. And here He is laying out how he's going to preserve the world until it ends once again. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Team on the earth and multiply in it. So here God gives three basic things in order for life to continue. The procreation of man through the family, the sustaining of man through the civil consumption of food, and the preservation of man through the punishment of wrongdoing. So this is where we see very clearly in a recreated world, God lays the groundwork for the human race to be preserved. But it's non-eternal. It's non redemptive. So it's serving a function of preservation, not redemption, not bringing us to ultimate things. That's going to happen in the Abrahamic covenant. It is a covenant of preservation. Why? Because God has saving purposes that he's going to accomplish in his people, in his Abrahamic people, leading to the new covenant and the people gathered around the Lord Jesus Christ. But the world needs to be preserved in some sense of order and justice and decency in order for his saving purposes to be realized. That is the end that human government serves. I would say ultimate end, but it's, it's really a penultimate end. You know, penultimate, second to last. It's a penultimate end that human government serves. That human beings might continue to increase and multiply so that God might save his elect. So that God's saving purposes might be realized. Another reason why in the biblical worldview... We would never hop on board with arguments about overpopulation. Right? Human beings are never a moral evil. You'll see people say that in the world today. We've got too many people. 
It's a moral evil to bring more humans into it. Never. A Christian would never believe that. Someone submitted to God's word would never say that, right? This does mean that human government also has the duty, as we see in our confession, to uphold the freedom to exercise the true religion. Any state which disallows Christians to freely exercise and to live in the way that God's word tells them, that government has lost its legitimacy. Something that you see that's rather insidious even in our own, in our own uh, era, our own situation, our own culture here, is that uh, religious freedom becomes reduced to what's called freedom to worship. Keep your, ears, keep your ears to the ground for that, that phrase. The freedom to worship, it's terribly reductionistic and inadequate. They'll say, well, we, we're the kind of country that allows people to go at 9.30 a.m. on Sunday morning and go to a place and hear things that they agree with. It's terribly inadequate. Uh, the founding fathers of our country were interested in the free exercise of religion, being able to live in each and every area of your life according to the way that God's word prescribes you to live. So any government which, which does not allow Christians to live in light of the word of God, that is a government that has lost its legitimacy. But this part of, uh, if, if you're interested, you can do some study and look at the back of your Psalter hymnal later. Article 36 actually has a footnote, and this is one of the articles of the Belgian Confession that has undergone the most reconstruction since it was first written. So you can read about how a synod of the Christian Reformed Church revised a part of that in the 1950s. So true worship is uh, a matter of the heart. And it used to be, when the Belgic Confession was, was first penned, it was thought that the place, a function of civil government was to punish those who committed idolatry. And now reformed Christians of all stripes believe that uh, certainly the kinds of developments we have seen in human government and this move away from that kind of mentality since the Middle Ages is a good thing. Because the state bearing the sword cannot bring about true worship. Only the church can do that as it declares. And we lay it all before God's people and say, here's Christ, here's the gospel, here's obedience. Live in light of all of these things. So, the government's function is to preserve. It's to preserve. And finally, as we close, connected to this second idea, the scope of government is limited. This is something I've mentioned already. But the scope of government is limited. It has a, a limited function, and it must be understood in that context. All things, all shared projects of human history, what is it? It's a mixed bag. You're going to find good things, you're going to find bad things. You're going to find the reality of human sin. All of the answers that a government, the policy making that goes on, it should be done. Someone who's, who's operating according to wisdom, like Proverbs 8 says, understanding that people are sinners. But a lot of questions are difficult, not as cut, as, cut and dry as when we were talking about God's rule in the church, when it comes to legitimate and ill legitimate governments. When is a government completely illegitimate? What was the right course of action for Christians to take in Nazi Germany? There was a, a group of Christians that tried to assassinate Adolf Hitler. Was that right? Was that good? What is the proper course of action for Christians to take in China today as they're seeing their religious freedom completely taken away? 
how are we to think about the fact that we live and, and we benefit off of the, the many wonderful things in this country, but we live in a country that aborts millions of babies? How do you think about that? And at what point does the government lose more and more of its legitimacy? Various parts of these questions may have clear answers. Much of it remains a question of wisdom. We seek God to give us the wisdom to think about these things. This also means that as Christians, as we said, we can never be utopian. Utopia is never going to come until Jesus comes and he defeats death and he sets up the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, A phrase that I really like to keep in mind is that the Noahic covenant of Genesis 9 gives us a constrained vision for what this world can accomplish. A constrained vision. An unconstrained vision is we can accomplish anything. We can overcome all that stands in the way of true justice and true peace, true shalom. But as the people of God, we know that only the return of Christ can accomplish that. Today in this world, I believe in the evangelical church, many Christians are too idealistic, too caught up about what God can do in making all things new in this world before Christ comes again. But only Jesus can make all things new. Only he can make all things new. Scripture gives us the sense that we will always be pilgrims. We will always be strangers. We will always walk through this world with our ultimate home in heaven. God allows us to plod along as the human race. He, allows, he gives us this, this relative good of human government so that we can keep a sense of justice and order and decency in this world, even while injustice and disorder are always lurking. And God makes his people new how? He makes his people new in word and in sacrament in the church. He calls people to repent, to believe in Christ, and to follow him. When Jesus comes again, the sons of God will be revealed. The curse will be broken. Sin and death no longer will reign. We will dwell with God forever. That is a wonderful hope. But it will not happen until Jesus comes back. Government, civil magistrates, leaders, elected leaders, appointed leaders, their role is to preserve this world, not to redeem it. The same is true in all of our shared projects of common grace, any kind of organization, right? It may help the world be better preserved, but it does not make anyone more or less justified. That is what the gospel does, and that is what God does in his sovereign grace. So we look to the end of all things when Jesus will come again. This is when he will put an end to the mixed bag. This is when he will put an end to all of our common grace projects because he will make all things new. He will give us a new heavens and a new earth. Thank God that that is where our true hope lies. That that is ultimately what we keep in our minds and our hearts as God calls us to walk through this world with pilgrim faith. Until then, submit to the legitimate authorities over you. Ask God to give you wisdom to navigate the tough questions. And we'll pray that he always keeps us anchored in his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Christ rules and reigns. We thank you for this passage in Romans 13, a challenging passage. We pray that you would apply its truth to our hearts. Father, we pray that we would be uh, obedient people that help and that that you would allow us to lead tranquil and quiet lives for your glory. We pray that you would hear our prayer tonight. Send us out into this week, uh, living according to you and your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.